This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Jacqueline Woodson is one of my favorite people in the world. She's a great writer. We know this. She's won all of the prizes and all of the things, and she's really good about talking to kids about reading and books and words and all of the stuff that blows up your world in the best possible way. Um, I'm so excited. I'm so, so excited. Remember Us is the new book for middle readers, young readers, middle grade. How am I supposed to? Young readers, I guess, is the best way to. Yeah, I would say two young readers for everyone, as Jason says about his writing. But yeah, it would be considered young readers, middle, re- middle grade readers, young people's literature. It's really great, this book remember us. And it is very, what I think of as sort of your world. We're in Bushwick. It's the seventies. We're talking about memory and home and a little bit of grief and a little bit of sadness. And you and I got to have a conversation about this book in front of some booksellers and librarians back in May. And it was really fun, but I have to tell you ever since that moment, and we're taping in September, (laughs) I've been thinking about another Brooklyn, which is the novel you did for adults that was published in 2016. And I love those girls. And I really love August as an adult. And I love her dad. And I love her little brother. And I love the girls. So I kind of want to bounce back and forth between the two. Because Bushwick in the 70s, obviously, is the soul of both books. And I love reading you when I'm switching gears back and forth between younger audience, older audience. And I'm also imagining what the audience in between is going to do with another Brooklyn. Because if I were a teenager and I got my hands on another Brooklyn, I would have been pretty excited. (laughs) But let's start with Remember Us. When did you start working on this book? Because Sage is a pretty great kid, and I can see her fitting right in on the edges with the girls of another Brooklyn. It's so true. I, I definitely think that all of my books are in conversation with each other, and especially another Brooklyn and Remember Us. So I'm so glad. You called that out. And Sage, I feel like Sage has always been with me. And I know writers say this all the time, but I feel like I've always wanted to write about what it means to be inside and outside of a moment at the same time, inside and outside of one's body at the same time. And and I think I have done it historically in so many of my books. (laughs) But in this and, and with Remember Us, I... I'm so much more intentional about telling that particular story. So I would say she's been with me for 20 years. The story of the fires has been with me forever. And just not knowing how, just not having a way into it until I realized what it was I wanted this book to say about, as we, as you said, grief, about Bushwick, about girlhood and friendship and all of the things that it does visit. And change, right? Mm-hmm. Like change can be... I know some adults who don't really like change, and I know some kids who are like, well, we'll see. And, and then they do fine. I mean, change is something that sort of sends everyone into different corners, let's put it that way for the moment. And it's so interesting because um, when I think about another Brooklyn, in both those books, we're talking about white flight a little yeah. bit and um, um, Remember Us, not much, but in Remember Us, it's more about Black flight, right? Yeah. Black and brown flight because people were leaving Bushwick to survive, to, to save their lives. Whereas right. 
white flight was more about people leaving Bushwick because they were afraid of the people coming in. So two very different scenarios, but people trying to escape a moment in a certain period of time. Right. But we can't escape class. I mean, kids know when they have different opportunities, when they have different sneakers, when they have different home lives, when they have, I mean, kids know. And there's a way to talk about this stuff without being heavy handed, but acknowledging it. And that's actually more of a high wire act than I think some people (laughs) realize. It is. And and I think they know and they don't know. They don't know until the mirror is held up to them or the window, as Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop talks about, you know, is held up for them to see this other space in which they are not a part of. But inside the, in Remember Us, they don't really know until they see what's happening on Ridgewood Place, right? right? And in that moment of seeing these people living in brick houses, these people having these great meals and desserts, these people having these fancy cars, then that that reflects back onto them in a reflection of their own poverty and what they don't have that keeps them what they don't have. So it is interesting, but there is also the cocoon that is in some ways a safety net because there are so many other people like them in their space. So it is interesting. I think about my own childhood, um, the dividing line was um, this railroad track on Irving Avenue that separated Bushwick from Ridgewood. And Ridgewood was very, very white. Bushwick was black and brown. And Ridgewood had stone houses and people who seemed to have means. I mean, they were working class, poor white folks, but they seemed to be of a different class. But just knowing that there was something over there that I wasn't allowed to have made me look at what I did have differently and made me also want to embrace the people who were like me and us not having what they had across in Ridgewood, which is so interesting now because um, I was at the wine store in my neighborhood in Park Slope and and this guy, um, I, the guy and I were talking, the wine cellar, and I asked him where he lived. And he said he lived in Bushwick. And I said, oh, where in Bushwick? And he gave me an address that was in Ridgewood. I'm like, that's not Bushwick. That's Ridgewood. <laughs> <laughs> I remember as a kid being ashamed of Bushwick and lying right. and saying I lived in Ridgewood. And to see that um, flip, that switch flip that way was hysterical for me and also kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, the heartbreaking piece, too. I So my parents left Brooklyn Heights for Massachusetts because of a job. So I missed where I was supposed to be from and ended up (laughs) in New England. So, you know, such as, but, and yay dad and whatever. But at the same time, part of what I get when I'm reading your books, whether I'm reading for the short set or I'm reading for adults, is the sense of community. And you capture community and sort of the ebb and flow of community, but there's always a big beating heart to what you're doing. And it's something that I really wish that I'd had in the way that you experience it and the way you put it into your books. And, you know, the suburbs are different. I had a nice life. I'm, I, I have nothing to complain about. But the world that you conjure on the page is so exciting and yet at the same time there is a little bit of melancholy to it there's a little bit of nostalgia Mm -hmm. but not the creepy nostalgia 
the good nostalgia. <laughs> um, I think there are two different kinds of nostalgia. <laughs> There's the weaponized kind and the yes. good kind. Yes, yes. A hundred percent. It's so funny because, it's, of course, it's me looking back on a time, right? right? In right. both Another Brooklyn and Remember Us. And in that way, Remember Us breaks the rule of middle grade fiction in the same way that Brown Girl Dreaming did, right? One of the quote unquote rules is that the protagonist should be of the age and uh, that the book is targeted to, of the young people right. it's targeted to. So, the, and that narrator should be that, that age. So, mm-hmm. so if the kid, if the story is about a 12 year old, where have a 12 year old telling that story. In Remember Us, it's a character looking back on that time from an older space. So from that older space, she sees stuff that she might not have necessarily seen at that age in some way. Whereas Another Brooklyn, it's an adult looking back on her childhood. But with um, the melancholy, I feel like, A, it's always with me. In this way, I remember a writer asking me if I got um, jealous of other writers. And Mm -hmm. and I was like, I don't get, I'm not jealous of other writers. I'm jealous of everybody who gets to have some other experience because I can only have this experience inside this particular body. But I want to know all those other experiences. I want to know what it's like to be, you know, a person in Korea. I want to know what it's like to grow up in Puerto Rico. I want to know what it's like to live in the suburbs of Massachusetts. So, And so I think there is a melancholy that we have this one life. And of course, we have to, as Mary Oliver talks about, do what we can with it. And that trickles into my narratives in the way that looking back does bring a melancholy, right? A wistfulness for the bittersweetness of it, right? So there was, and remember us, it was, there was struggle, but there was also all this light and all of this, as you talk about community and all of this play and all of this possibility. So I think in writing everything I write, I am a part of my Jacqueline brain is looking back on that. You have this great line in another Brooklyn and it's August sort of looking at her friends and it's maybe two thirds of the way through. She said, what keeps us keeping here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this idea that place is so tangible And the people, like, you can't separate the people from the place, right? Mm -mm. And the kids that you create are really, they're so observant. And I think as a culture, like, as a society and a culture, we forget that kids notice a lot. Like, we forget all the time. And they're actually not stupid creatures. They're just not stupid. Oh, my God. They notice everything. And it's wild to me. Mm Yeah. When I see people kind of dismissing these experiences of childhood. And also, I don't really need children in books sounding like they're 40. <laughs> I Like, let them sound like children, please. Yeah. Like, they have the rest of their lives to sound like they're 40. We're still making this mistake and not taking them seriously. Oh, man. Even, because I think we forget our own childhoods, right? right? And a lot of people forget them because they were painful and they don't want to go back to what it means. When you look at middle school as you cringe to think of having to have that experience again. And I think those of us who write to young people aren't afraid of that. Like we want to go back there and do something different in that Mm -hmm. space. And we want to go back there and have the power that we didn't have as young people or give the young people that power in that space from what we've learned from it. 
But it is that balance of how do you do this without being didactic? How do you be this without making your young people old ladies? And I remember people used to always be like, and it would aggravate me to no end, say, well, when are you, are, when are you going to write a book for adults? Or you have a plan on writing grown-up fiction? And, and people don't ask people who write, for, who write to adults when are they planning to write a young people's book, a book targeted at young people? It's not easy, right? I think one of the hardest things you can do is go back to that space and write with from the memory of that. And remember that kids are all eyes, all ears, mm-hmm. all the time. So we look at ourselves as young people. We were watching and listening to everything. Young people also get so erased in our society, are so invisible that people disregard them and don't think of them as small humans who are already 100% there and taking in everything and they're going to grow up and spit it back at us, whether it's in therapy or to our face, because it, it, they're, they're actually just so deeply brilliant in this way that I am here for all day long. Yeah, right. They're connected. They mm-hmm. don't, mm-hmm. it's not a lack of filter on their part. They're just grounded in a way and they just, they have an ability to speak the truth Mm-hmm. in yeah. ways that the older we get, it's sort of, you know, it's tapped out of us a little bit. <laughs> Just, mm-hmm. you know, we've been sort of trained, I guess, for want of a better yes. word, to present ourselves differently and, and you know, play well with others kind of thing. And kids are just like, wait a minute, this is some garbage. I mean, we've got <laughs> kids in Remember Us, the adults are reliable. They're a little more reliable mm-hmm. than they are certainly in another Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Adults aren't necessarily the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they aren't. We yeah, know no. that to be true, and they definitely <laughs> can't be in the literature that's targeted at young people. Because um, we know as kids, that's not who we went to for yeah. our answers. We went to each other. We went to our right. friends. We went to teenagers who were slightly older. But we were not trying to cross that bridge to adults for because they weren't on our side. Um, no matter. How how much they were on our side. I know, you know, I remember us, there's this scene with Sage and the fire, the bathroom fire, and her mother gets her out of there. Her mother's eyes are just like, who are you? And it's this moment of division, right? Like they're, they, they're each other's close people. And then suddenly her mother's like, I don't know you at all. And so just, and, and, but it has been leading up to Sage realizing that she is not as close to her mother as she thought she right. was because she can't tell her of that the incident that transpired before then. But it is that, I mean, I, when I, whenever someone says, well, my mom is my best friend or my daughter is my best friend, I'm like, ooh, okay, if that's who you are. I don't understand it because I've individuated. And uh, yeah, I, I, I was very fond of my mother. <laughs> Great lady. Uh, definitely my mama. <laughs> like, let's just be clear on the rules. Like, enjoyed her company quite a lot. Every now and again, would look at her very strangely. Because if you've yes. been around New England ladies of a certain age, they have feelings and opinions that are kind of fascinating. <laughs> and I say that with love and respect. But, you know, and every now and again, too, because she's an immigrant, right? Like she would have the immigrant mama moment come out and you're just like, okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. You know, <laughs> would you like a snack? <laughs> <laughs> but not my best friend. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely not my best friend. But watching these kids move through the world, right? And you give them language. And I'm going to jump for a second and pull in Brown Girl Dreaming because. If for some reason you've thought, oh, this is just for the short set, 
or you haven't been able to listen to Jacqueline's reading of it in the audiobook. Adults who like poetry, adults who like memoir, <laughs> please just go listen. I was listening again as I was prepping because part of it is the language and the rhythm of the language and, and sort of making that shift from the way you write in Remember Us and then coming back to another Brooklyn because obviously the writing shifts given the audience. And for me as a reader, Brown Girl Dreaming is a nice bridge because it is a memoir written in verse, which, okay, not an easy thing to do. <laughs> like, just not an easy thing to do. Verse is hard enough, but then you've got to sustain it for an entire manuscript. And then you have to create a narrative arc with it. And all of it. <laughs> all of it. So, I mean, for me, that sort of sits between what you're doing, though, with Remember Me and Another Brooklyn. I just want to talk about language and voice for a second, because you do. You write picture books for tiny people. We've got Red at the Bone and Another Brooklyn for the older set. And then we've got this beautiful range of stuff in between for young readers that treats them like they understand what's happening. Like, I'm just thinking also, too, of um, Harbor Me, which is a book that I really quite like of yours. And each of these kids is so individual. But I mean, talk about putting the frog in the boiling water and turning up the temperature. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, can we talk about the creation of the voice for a second? Because it is very distinct, and yet I know when I'm reading you. Ah, you and AI, right? So everything I write, I have to read out loud. And it has to sound a certain way in the air, and it has to feel a certain way in the air. Mm -hmm. So when I am reading, if I don't have an emotional connection to the words, they get changed. Mm-hmm. And I really, I don't love adjectives and I love white space. I think it's okay to breathe when you're reading. It's mm-hmm. okay to rest when you're reading and also to do that when you're writing. And so when I have these moments that are pretty intense, then there is this exhale, right? There's this way in which I write so you can just take a breath move through the moment. Mm-hmm. In this case, we're talking about grief too, but not not experience it. Right. And I think that's the thing that people are very scared about is having an experience that's going to feel some kind of way that mm-hmm. they don't want to feel. And I think that's the only way we can have a catharsis is to move through right. the moment and get to the other side of it. And know that on the other side, we're still okay, if not a little bit deeper in our being. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those people who also, I genuinely believe that when you enjoy a moment, right, whether it's joy, it's happiness, whatever, you kind of do need that reminder of what's on the flip side in order to have the beauty and the poetry. Like, life is not one dimensional, and I would like it not to be one dimensional. And the idea, that somehow we can't have sadness or grief or melancholy or bittersweetness or whatever you want to call it. In fiction, like, I would like to feel all of the things. That's why I read. (laughs) I want (laughs) to, I don't necessarily, and also, like, I I can insert a joke here again about being raised outside of Boston. It's like, well, factory settings are, we don't have feelings, right? Like, we don't know how to do this. (laughs) That's why gin was invented. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, though, it gives kids a space, right? Give them a book. It gives them space 
mm-hmm. to figure out how they might feel about something without the pressure of the outside world or their peers mm-hmm. or parents or siblings. I mean, older siblings, hi, we can be pushy. Um, like it gives you a chance to figure out what you genuinely think about a thing. Mm-hmm. And I love that yeah. about books in the world and everything else. And, you know, again, to see this sort of continuum for you in the work and coming back to girlhood and coming back to who becomes invisible, mm-hmm. right? It's encouraging. It's joyful. I mean, yeah, there are moments where not great stuff happens, but that's also mm-hmm. life. Like, you know, we're not curating our existence on Instagram. Oh, man. Like, we're not editing in just the pretty pictures, right? Like, yeah. you know, I'm guilty of that as anyone else's. I mean, there are plenty of times where I'm like, yeah, that picture's never going out. And, just, <laughs> but, and it's fine. But to be able to create a sense of community, right, with words. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I it just, so it's, we get to do some cool stuff. When we're in the book business, right? Like we just get to do. I am so grateful for it every day. I just, I don't want to ever have to imagine not being able to tell right? stories. I remember with um each kindness and each kindness, mm-hmm. you know, is the story of two girls and yep. one is not kind. And the ending of it, I remember when I discovered that books don't have to have a happy ending as long as there's hope somewhere in the book, right? And I read it to this third grade class, and this kid was so mad at me, but. but and he stood up, he's like, that would never happen. That would never happen. And so we had this whole long conversation about it. And his teacher emailed me later and said, he came back and he borrowed the book and read it again. And she's like, he just wanted to read it again. By the end of the week, he had read the book about five times and it was his favorite book. But it was so interesting that he had to go through this rage of how dare you not have something on the next page, like every fairy tale I've read till this moment. Yeah. And that moment where we leave the world of fairy tales into realistic fiction and the world changes, I, I, I definitely believe for the better because it, it helps us understand our everyday. To find the details of your life, right? Or the truth of the details of your life in the details of someone else's. I mean, that's kind of the magic of a book, so right? Like when you can find the thing and you're like, I have nothing in common with it. What? And then suddenly <laughs> you're like, oh, oh, that phrase emotional truth. <laughs> it is so true. It it's is so true. You know, and I feel like world building has been sort of handed over to sci-fi, fantasy, you know, that kind of and world building actually has to happen in the context of any novel, right? Like you mm-hmm. have to have a sense of time. You have to watch the progression of time. And to be able to dance between fiction for younger readers and and adults and the way you have to shift your understanding of time, right? Because, I mean, kids are just like, oh, my God, an hour? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Nine years from, or like a summer day where we were kids, we'd, after camp we'd be sent out and my mother's like i don't want to see you until the end of the day she actually had a bell that she would ring <laughs> and when it was time for us to be back and she's like okay and you could hear the bell from wherever we were but we were that gang of kids right like you're out in the world or you're you know sailing a little boat in the harbor whatever and like wow. not home until the very end of the day yes i remember my grandmother was always inside or outside and if you were going to be mm-hmm. inside you know, find a book and go be somewhere inside so that it seemed like you were outside because you weren't bothering her. <laughs> and if you were outside, stay outside. And we had 
you know, a parameter. We had four or five blocks that we could be on, yep. but, uh, and we knew not to cross those lines, but do not come back inside. Like, <laughs> go, you know, here's, here's some snack money. Bye. I'll see you when the streetlights come on. Yeah, that generational divide too. Yeah. I mean, parents in the seven, <laughs> I won't say I was raised by wolves entirely, <laughs> but I mean, parenting in the seventies was slightly different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was in the seventies and eighties. Like it was, slightly different than it is now, but watching the adults find their feet, right? Mm-hmm. Sage's mom mm-hmm. is trying to figure out what she wants. Certainly August's dad. Mm-hmm. I kind of miss August's dad. He's <laughs> doing the best he can. and He really you know, I, I'm not entirely sure he can make ice, but he's, <laughs> he's going to raise those kids. And it's wonderful to see, right? And and dad being dad and little brother being little brother, right? The framework is you and what you remember and and sort of turning these ideas around. But how much of that is the characters also just saying, well, this is who I am? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much. And right. I, I don't outline, I mean, there's some point where I have to start scaffolding the story and trying to figure out what it's trying to say. But I do give the characters that grace. I always think they're going to reveal themselves to me. The more I write, the more I sit with them, the more I read out loud, I'm going to understand who they are. Uh, I feel like if I outlined, I would fight with my characters. Like, no, this is what you're supposed to do. And I remember Cornelius Eady, who's one of my favorite poets in the world, saying, sometimes the story knows more than you do about what it's trying to say. And having that be this kind of door opening for me, like, wait a second, I can let my story lose control and and not not get really nervous about it. So it did allow for a certain freedom to create people in a different way, characters. It's so wild to hear you say, let a story get a little out of control because you write very tightly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I held up a copy, I have the finished copy of Remember Us. And I mean, you write very tightly. You know what you want to do. And that's even with white space on the page, which I do as a reader, I appreciate. You know, there's some books that are meant to be longer. There are some books that meant, but you seem to have found this sweet spot for you mm-hmm. as a creator, for you as the writer. And I realize Brown Girl Dreaming is slightly longer, but again, that's a formatting thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But you seem to have this sort of inner compass for mm-hmm. how long you need to tell a story. And you know, sometimes it's really hard to write short. <laughs> Sometimes it's really hard to get these sort of dreamy vignettes. And obviously, there's a little more structure when you're writing, you know, for the 10 to 12 to 13 or 9 to 13. Yeah, it used to be it used to be 10 to 13. Mm -hmm. Then it was 9 to 13. Then it was 10 and up. Sometimes it's 12 and up. Okay. But you do. I mean, there's a little more formal structure. I mean, it -hmm. seems to me and (laughs) this really just comes from reading lots of bedtime stories to nieces and nephews. Kids like repetition. They like having structure to a story. They might want funny voices. Mm-hmm. I leave that to their <laughs> uncle. I don't do the funny voices. I'm happy to read with, you know, expression and emotion, but please don't make me do funny voices. <laughs> but you do have a little more freedom in something like Another Brooklyn, where we can fill in the gaps more, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. than a younger reader would, right? Definitely. I, I feel like with um, the books for adults, I, I expect my reader to meet me halfway yeah. with their own experiences and fill in those, fill in the white space, fill in what's left unsaid. And, and I do believe that 
reading is the conversation between the author and the reader that it shouldn't be like television where everything is packed up and answered nicely Mm -hmm. by the end of the book. I I think a a good book leads you you asking, and this is for young people or adults, you're asking questions, you're it's resonating long after you've closed mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. You're thinking about the characters. Like for me, that is a book that I I, I remember when I read uh, Jasmine Ward's Sing Unburied Sing many years ago. Yeah. And just um, like, I'm like, I'm ruined. I can't read anything else for a couple of months because nothing else is going to do all these things to me. <laughs> and and that is the, and I know she's, she doesn't, she's not a spare writer, but Right. And she is a writer who leaves questions inside mm-hmm. the narrative mm-hmm. in this way that you do feel like there is a conversation going on. So I, I, I for me, it means deleting a lot, going yeah. back and tightening. And I read that way, too. If people yeah. have if I read a page and someone says the woman wore a purple dress. Why is that dress purple? Why are you telling me that? How is this right. going to pay off at the end of this chapter? And it's hard to read without being interrupted by the words that don't need to be there. <laughs> yeah, no, I got it. And actually, as you were talking about Sing Unburied Sing, I was like, I wonder if JoJo's okay. Yes, I still yes. think about that book and I still think yes. about that kid. Yes. And oh, I mean, like, I, literally, as you were talking, I was like, yeah. <laughs> Boy, I mean, but that's the beauty, right? When mm-hmm. you get pulled into a story that that visceral, because I remember being completely destroyed by that book. And my mm-hmm. personal top 10 sort of rotates you know, oh, wow. I don't I don't have a top 10 list that's fixed except for that. That book is always. Yes. I, I'm yes. not entirely sure necessarily what's and, and certainly things shift around it. But that will <sighs> never, ever leave my sort of personal mental list because of what she does in that book. And I think, mm-hmm. again, when you look at sort of the mix of sort of a little bit of magic realism and certainly you know, the the social realism that we get when we're reading her. But ultimately, it always comes back to the language, which is what happens yes. for me when I'm reading you. Ultimately, it always comes back to the language. And I do believe there's a book for everyone, but language is really important for me. I really, like, I, I don't necessarily need stuff to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really good when you get language and character and stuff happens. I mean, that's great. Same. But... I am, I need language. Mm-hmm. I, I need to know that the writer is invested in telling the story in a new way. And that's when it comes mm-hmm. down to language. Yeah. And at the same time, it has to be that balance where the language doesn't get in the way of yes. the story, right? It's like, oh, you're trying <laughs> yes. too hard. You really <laughs> didn't have to talk about that cloud that way because <laughs> so there is that balance for me. And reading out loud, clearly, I mean, I write a lot of copy. And even when you're writing copy, it's like, does this pass the sniff test? And if it Uh, sounds weird coming out of your own mouth, like, okay, (laughs) we need an edit. We need, and and literally, I'm talking about like maybe Mm -hmm. three sentences. I would just like those three sentences to be better than, I just don't want to settle. Like, I just, I think when we're talking about books, and I'm not, I'm not saying sacred objects. It's it's not that. Mm-hmm. It's just I have a ridiculously great job. Yes. I get to talk about words and ideas and readers and you know my eyes get big thinking about it. I am a person who likes to go to work. <laughs> oh man, I, cool I know. Book. I'm I'm sitting here and I'm looking at all the books behind you. And I know. It's like oh yeah, I read that. I read that. That's so cool. And you've read you read a lot of books. I do. Mila. 
I do. I do. I'm really lucky. I read very quickly and I can, I can retain a lot. And that's partially how we get, but this is just the New York studio too. And this is just the books behind me are just the books that we featured on the show since 21 when we started. And there's some, you can't see because the camera is the camera, but and Nanakwame Ajayabrenya and Chain Gang All-Stars and, you know, wow. there's Trust. Trust. Yes. yes. And Caleb Gale is in here somewhere. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> there's some really, there's some amazing work coming out. Mm-hmm. And again, I do believe there is a book for everyone, but I get really excited when I get a writer who's playing with time or playing with memory and our experience of the past, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is something you do. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. think you pretty much do it in every book, whether we know it <laughs> or not, but there's always this sort of thrumming sense of history and mm-hmm. how we've repeated our choices. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so interesting. I remember writing, if you come softly, which was a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. And this was in the nineties. And I remember the pushback for that book because one of the main characters gets killed in a case of mistaken identity by mm-hmm. cops and the black boy and people saying this would not happen because it was before social media and black community knew about it. Other people, black and brown communities knew and other people didn't. And how looking at that book now, it would look like I'm headline chasing with something like Behind You, which was a sequel to that book, really wanting to put New York on the map, like a, the mm-hmm. love song we had for New York, especially post 9-11, even right. though 9-11 had nothing to do with that book, the grief that I was feeling as one who had lost people in 9-11 got poured mm-hmm. into what it feels like, what it felt like for my characters to lose someone. And so for right. me, that was a way to deal with the grief and to heal from it and to understand that, you know, our ancestors go on and on, even the young ones. But I do feel like I'm such, I have such a love for Brooklyn and New York through its many iterations that I always want to write about it. And like another Brooklyn, which I I know we've talked about before is nonfiction, poetry, and fiction that I was trying to do all that in one book, but it really was speaking to the Bushwick that had existed before it was quote unquote discovered because I got so offended when younger hipster people would say, oh, I just discovered this new neighborhood Bushwick. It's like, no, we lived there. And before us, it was all not like, you know, that these, these places did exist um, and continue to exist and different park slope too. I mean, it was a different park slope. And when you look at a book like Brown Girl, Brown Stones, (laughs) which talks about Caribbean people coming to the city and working three or four jobs to own a brownstone and then looking at what became of those brownstones, but not having the history of people coming, white folks coming in and offering people cash for those brownstones. And then people think that was a lot of money at the time. And all of that history is so important to Mm -hmm. me being connected to a place and not wanting, yeah, it to be repeated and people to forget that something happened here before they got here. Yeah, I mean, that sense of being rooted, I think, is so important. I mean, I make jokes about New England and being a New Englander and whatnot, but you really have a sense of time and history and what gets left out of conversations, right? Uh, The things that we weren't taught or how we were taught things, like, you know, you finally sort of make your way in the world, right? And you're like, oh, you never mentioned that piece. (laughs) Oh, hot. Mm, Okay. 
Mm-hmm. And to be able to fill in the blanks, right? Like, that's what every young reader is looking to do. Mm-hmm. They're just mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to make sense. I mean, yes. Okay. Did I read Harriet the Spy and was I desperate for a dumbwaiter? Yes. yes. Yeah, I was like, why do we not have, we live in an old house. Why do we not have a dumbwaiter? This may- I looked for ours. I was like, where is it? Like, I Did you ever find it? it? I found it in the Park Slope house, but not okay. in, when I was growing up in Bushwick. <laughs> okay. I, you know, it's one of those things, but I'm like, we should have one of, this makes all of the sense in the world, you know, to have that kind of connection, right? Yes. Like, it's yes. amazing to it's have so this grounded sense, right? Like I can make fun of, you know, the factory settings that come with being a New Englander. Even with a book like All of a Kind Family. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Just the fact that, I mean, that family was so different from my own and not, and yet not, right? Because right. we had the connection of the city. We had the connection of siblings and all these ways in which you found yourself inside other people's stories. Mm-hmm. I, listen, I had a serious thing for Little House on the Prairie when I was a yes. kid because obviously I didn't know enough to have the context, mm-hmm. but I really wanted a sod house in the backyard and I went outside. <laughs> no, I went outside with a trowel and my parents were like, yeah, please don't do that. <laughs> and they were like, well, if the, if the ceiling, if the roof collapses on you, like really, it could be a bad thing. And I was like, no, no, no. I really want a sod house. I think oh, there was a standoff goodness. eventually. I think they won. <laughs> but you know, Wind in the Willows, all of these things, right? Anne of mm-hmm. Green Gables. It just gets you to a place where story becomes bigger than the thing you're holding in your hand. Mm-hmm. Right? Like mm-hmm. story becomes a tool of organizing. Story becomes a tool of creating family. Yeah. Yeah. Creating community. And it's just like, oh. Uh, yeah. It's so funny. I just um I wrote this, I'm writing this piece for Bon Appetit about um, food and my friend Maria and and learning about Puerto Rican food and how that wasn't just food. It was a whole family, right? Even outside your own culture, when you you step into not only the books, but the the experiences of real people, like you do gain family, you do gain all of this access to a culture that in some ways become a part of your own. I mean, Maria and I, you, know, you met her in Brown yeah, Girl yeah. Dreaming and we're still really close. But looking back on that moment in Bushwick where we shared everything, we shared books, we shared clothes, yeah. we shared food. And and I think if I, if Maria hadn't moved on my block, if I hadn't had the books I had, if I hadn't had the family I had, it would have been such a homogenous life in so many ways. But there is this way in which all of these doors opened to us because of our openness. And I do think that openness starts with literature. It does. It really, really does. It does not. I can guarantee this. It does not start with penny loafers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there was some homogenous culture thing happening and that's, Another conversation for you and I at some point, because it will really make like wide whale quarter. Yeah. I have oh, some, my I goodness. Have With pennies in them or without? Without, but <laughs> there was some pink. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. yeah. What's next? I mean, uh, you seem to go back and forth between. Yeah, I'm working on what I have right here is um, my next adult book. I start, you know, I'm trying to get it done. I'm trying to okay. get a draft of it done by the end of September. I mean. But then it's going to take a long time to get the next draft and the next draft. But I'm, I'm back. I'm excited to be back to the world of adult literature and be able to. And, it, it, you know, it takes place at, during the 80s and the visual art community, which is 80s and 90s, which is a community I know about because I lived in Provincetown for five right. years in the right. 90s. 
But it's interesting to write about what you don't know, you know, because I'm not a visual artist and Mm -hmm. and the discovery in that is so great. I mean, August, I'm not an anthropologist either, but I was able to get August on the page. So I'm hopeful. I also, I would love to see more literature set in the 80s. And uh, I'm just going (laughs) to shout out Iana Mathis's Unsettled because a big chunk of it happens in the 80s in Philadelphia. And um, it's just out as you and I are taping this. And Lisa Coe, too, right? Lisa Coe also doing the 80s, and that's uh, March, I think, March of 2024. But part of the whole 80s thing, when I look at the 80s, I'm just like, hi, the 80s do explain this moment we're in. And could we please stop (laughs) forgetting that the 80s happened, for one. And two, like, really, all of the structural things that are happening in our society that are really, really broken, Mm -hmm. they started being broken in the 80s. And there's this sort of... I don't know. It's it's this collective amnesia or this willfulness. And I'm just like, it's all right there. It uh, all literally starts. And does Ayana go there? Yeah. Uh, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, there's there's just there's a lot of great work happening across the spectrum, whether we're talking about the short set or young readers or mm-hmm. you know, for adult readers or whatnot, there's so much you can do in a book to talk about what's happening in our culture and what's happening with us as human beings, right? Like it's a really flexible medium. It's a really wild medium. It's, it's, you know, it's sticky. It's the kind of thing that tattoos itself on the back of your brain. Like we get to do this every day. That's nuts. (laughs) It's so great. No matter what, no matter who's saying, stop doing it. So it's amazing. So um, can I ask you a question aside from, Ayana Mathis's book, which I am immediately buying. Can you give me some other reading suggestions? Brian Washington, uh, Family Meal, which yes, is not out yes. until October, so I'm sorry to make you wait. But <laughs> blah, blah, blah. also Justin Torres, Blackout. Oh, he has a new oh, book out. Oh yes. my goodness! Yes, he so does. Excited. Yes, he does, and he does some wild stuff with story. And I'm going to tease you a little bit and just say, when I started reading it, the first thing I thought about was sort of 1950s kind of dreamy John Fonte kind of like we're in the desert kind of thing. And it is quickly shown that this is not in fact where we are, but what he does with story and who gets to tell stories and how we get to tell stories. There's also a lot. And he writes short books, right? He does, but I'm also bringing it up for you because when you mentioned working in the visual arts for the next book, there are illustrations in blackouts that are photographs and some is blacked out poetry and it's a book about a book and it does all of the things that we want books to do and brian washington man that guy if you haven't read memorial go read memorial too but i know you've read memorial (laughs) i've read memorial and you know family meal i'm halfway through i i just he just keeps doing he just keeps bringing it and i i'm so here for it he also has discovered white space Oh, in family meal. If I'm if I'm right. looking on the physical, like he's using it in a different way. He's using it in a really, really different way in this particular book. And I think you might not be exactly there yet, but I mm-hmm. promise you, you will see it when <laughs> you will know. And again, like voice is a thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. have this great warm narrative voice, and yet all of your characters have really distinct voices. 
The other book I want to rant about for a second is Temple Folk. Oh, yes. Stories. Yes. Leah Bilal. Yes, I blurped it. Oh, okay. So you've read yes. it. Never mind. I yes. Yes. I absolutely. See, this is what happens when you read things without like, <laughs> covers. <laughs> when you just, I'm notorious for taking words on the page, as I call it, and I get things in all sorts of different shape when they, I love it. When they were. That book, and that, that was long voice. listed, I think. Right? It is long listed, yes. and there's a lot of good stuff on the long list there. And also, do you know this kid, Caleb Azuma Nelson? He's a Brit, and he's also a filmmaker as well as being a novelist, a photographer, a filmmaker, and a novelist. And um, oh wow, so Small Worlds is set in London, but it's a Ghanaian community, and it's like the perfect. And I realize we're coming out of summertime, but I'm recommending it anyway because it's a way to extend summertime. It's kind of <laughs> one of those perfect summer novels. Music oh, wow. is a big deal. Caleb actually turned me on to this British rapper called Dave. His name is Dave. Dave is the rapper. Yeah, it's uh -huh. just Dave. Okay. <laughs> it's just Dave. He's a British okay. rapper. Because we have Dave here who's little Dicky. You know him. Different Dave. A super <laughs> different Dave. <laughs> super different Dave. But Caleb, he's at the very end of the, and it's a very short, it's maybe 220 pages. It's oh, really wow. short. Um, he flips the narrative voice at the end of the book in a way that made me pay attention. That's wow. I, he's a really, he's... Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does next. But the way he does the immigrant story, too, because, again, like, right, mm -hmm. there are only so many ways to tell a story. So if you get the language right, wow, get the language right. And it's just there's a lot mm -hmm. of swing. And it's I will say he does write sort of very cinematically. There's a lot in the book. So those are the ones I would say, okay. you know, but let's Thank keep our fingers you. crossed for Temple folk, Temple folk. lists and also Justin Torres is on the is on the long list too. There, there's oh. a lot of good yeah. work out there. This has been a really good year for books. Um, oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm I was excited to see all the lists because I was like, there are some really good books here. Thank you, NBF. Thank you, right? Committees, because y'all are doing your thing. And it's just in terms of the span of storytelling, yeah. it was just really fabulous. The you know the diversity, the ways people are telling the story. I'm 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 so excited. And the voice. Right, it's and all, here's to them making a short list. Mm -hmm. These voices, man, it's these ah, the plurality of voices. You do audiobooks and um, you read them also. Yeah, I read in any format. So I spend a lot of time on planes still. So I do read electronically. I just prefer when I'm prepping for the show. I prefer paper because that way I can write all over everything and dog ear things. And well, actually, so as I mentioned to you, I reread another <laughs> book one last night, and so. There's there's a lot happening now in this annotated copy. Uh, <laughs> I will revisit things in audio that I've already read when I'm mm -hmm. prepping for the show, just to see if I catch something new. You know, electronically, I can do it. And sometimes uh -huh. you can't fit all of the books you physically. I mean, you spend a lot of time on the road, too. You can't carry everything you want to carry. But I do find that I engage with words differently when I'm holding a thing and can write on them. And I know you can annotate things on the screen. I understand these things. I can't. I just, I need a pencil. And I also, I love a sharp pencil. Yes. Yes. And, and so I, you know, and also when you're on a plane, like a sharp pencil won't explode in your hand and get ink all over you. I might start doing that. I, like I highly recommend it's, it's a much easier way to travel and be able to whip out notes really quickly because also I don't always yeah. want to pull out my phone and type a note. Sometimes I actually physically need to just scribble a thing. 
Thank you. Well, you know, I do. I'm taking that note about pencils. (laughs) I'll let you know how it goes. (laughs) Please do. Jacqueline Woodson, it is always so good to see you. This is great. Thank you so much for making the time because I know you're doing this from the road. So it's always really good to see you. Remember us is out October 10th. And really, if you have tiny people, you really do need this book. And also, if you're an adult with tiny people, you should read it with your tiny people because there's a lot for you in this book, too. Like, this is not limited to the 10 to 13 or the 9 to 13. There's a lot. If you haven't, Brown Girl Dreaming, certainly. And, of course, Red at the Bone and Another Brooklyn, which, as you can tell, I'm very, very fond of Another Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Jacqueline, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much. You too, Mila. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I adore you. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.